can all bow with me. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you even for uh, this, this day. We thank you for the rain that you provided for this province. And Lord, we ask that you would use it now to um, allow things to grow. God, we do thank you that you are our good Father, even as we celebrate our fathers uh, today. We thank you that you are our Father who sent his Son uh, to die so that we might have eternal life by faith in him. We do pray now that you would give the elders wisdom as they seek to shepherd this congregation. Lord, we do thank you for their service and labors for us. And so we ask that you now just grant them wisdom as they answer these questions. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you to many of you who sent uh, these questions. There are a lot of them. So I'm just going to go through them in order as to how we so I apologize if we don't get to your questions. Some of the people who, who sent them in later on Friday into Saturday. Um, but if you still have a question, feel free to come up and ask the elders on your own time. And I'm sure they'll, they'll happily answer them. So, put them through the ringer. Question, the first question we have. So, an individual wrote, a couple months ago, one of our pastors mentioned a story of a missionary who rarely saw his children. Yet he found comfort knowing that he would spend all eternity with them. In Revelation 1.4, it talks about God wiping away our tears and there being no mourning. So my question is, how will believers rejoice over saved loved ones, but not mourn over eternally lost loved ones? I think the, the first thing to consider in that is... is is just look at the comparison. You gotta think in terms of comparison. The glory of Christ in comparison to anything else is gonna be so amazing when we're in heaven. Uh, it's, it's gonna be so spectacular that there'll be no room for tears and crying. And so 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's beyond all comparison. And so that's kind of the question. Okay, uh, you know, believers, are they going to mourn over eternally lost loved ones? They'll, they'll be so, so enamored with the love of Christ that there'll be no room for, for tears. There'll be no room for that. And Christ's glory which is something right now because we have low views of his glory, we have limited views of his glory that then we struggle. That's why we get these questions. We struggle with that. But then his glory will so fill us that then it won't even be, it won't even be an issue and we'll see the goodness and justice of God appropriately, even, even recognizing the mercy of God towards towards even our lost loved ones in their lives and that they had received such mercy from God. So I think that's the thing, is to have Christ in our eyes. Um, Psalm 58 uh, says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. That's an imprecatory psalm, right? And, and it's, a, it's quite strong language. But this isn't... Um, this isn't a view that the, that the righteous are going to be uh, saying, good, you know, we, God got his vengeance. 
as Pastor Clint says, we will be rejoicing in the righteousness of God such and have minds renewed such that we will not mourn. Uh, and quite the thing to think now of, your, of loved ones, and I can think of family members myself, who, who will be facing an eternity under the judgment of God, and yet I will be rejoicing in the righteousness of God in that judgment because my mind will be so renewed yeah. and consumed with his, yeah. his glory. It also shows us that there's no neutrality. You're either for God or against God, and that it, the reality is loved ones that aren't Christians, aren't just nice people who don't believe. They're enemies of God, and they're under his judgment. And so uh, we, we pray for them, and it's a, there's an urgency of, of bringing the gospel to, to all who, who don't believe. And just because we don't always understand the hows or the whys, um, we're still called to trust the Lord in this, right? This is the promise that, you know, we, he'll wipe away every tear, and so we can cling to that promise even if we don't understand exactly how all that works out. I think, you know, these answers are very adequate and, and very fulfilling, uh, even if they're, they're difficult ones that, you know, we struggle to really uh, emotionally, you know, connect with, and yet we can trust the Lord that that will be the case. That's great. Next question we have. As a believer, the Bible repeatedly calls you a temple of the Holy Spirit and at many other points speaks of us literally having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Therefore, as believers, is it incorrect to ask the Holy Spirit to come into our presence during our church services and our prayers since he's already with us? I know this is common in more charismatic circles, but it can even be found in more conservative and reformed circles. Is this practice wrong and merely mystical religious talk, or is there biblical support for it? I'll go ahead and start. <laughs> um, when, we, when we invite the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. So God is omnipresent. So he is present everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent because he's God. So there's not an invitation as if there's an absence of the Spirit. There's no escape from the Spirit of God. But what we're asking for is for the Spirit's activity, particularly for believers who possess, as the, as the person with the question asks, we, we possess the Holy Spirit, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but we're asking, in particular, we're asking for the Spirit to come and then to fill us. And so filling is something that we're asking for. We're asking to be filled. And sometimes our invitation, maybe we're not specifically asking to be filled, but that's what we're asking. Uh, and so, um, for example, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, we have the Spirit as a Christian believer, but we're to be filled with the Spirit. And in turn, the opposite is that uh, back in chapter 4 and verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You have the Spirit, but there is a grieving of the Spirit. You can walk in sin, you can, you can walk in unbelief, and so grieve the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to grieve the Spirit we want to be filled with the Spirit, and we're inviting the Spirit to come and be active and fill us, and we're giving the Spirit our attention 
when we make such invitations. But it's not, it's not an invitation as if the Spirit is absent. And, it, and I think there's a possibility that Christians can act that way. Um, I remember the, hearing a story about some of the churches in Wales. And they would ask for the Holy Spirit to such an extent that some people thought, well, maybe the Spirit isn't here and nothing's really going on right now and we're waiting for the Spirit to come. Well, no, the Spirit has come. Spirit, you, if you're a Christian believer, you have the Spirit. But we do want to be filled with the Spirit and we want to seek His face to do that. He's known as the Spirit of Christ. And uh, I believe that it was... uh, Jonathan Edwards in one of his dissertations talk about talking about um, how the Spirit communicates Christ to us in, in, in that filling. So, so even as we pray to be filled with the Spirit, it's that increase of communication of Christ to our hearts as the, as, as the Father and Son reside in our hearts. So, um, and, 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 w- and you see in the Scriptures that, that people are filled with the Spirit for particular acts of ministry as well for boldness in evangelism and so on. That's really good. So these next couple of questions are, are coming from parents, just seeking some, some advice and wisdom in these, these days. So it's the month of June, and many of our children are coming into contact with pride activities, events, messages, etc. at their public school. Do you have any practical advice from Scripture how we can speak to our children about this? Also, how to deal with grace, but in truth with the teachers and administrators who are pushing this agenda. Yeah, I can um, talk to that. Uh, And the next question we had after that relates to public school and homeschools. One is going to lead into the other, so I'll just, I'll do both. Um, There are three realms of encounter I think your children will experience in public school. One will be having a transgender gay classmate One would be participating in pronoun introductions where you're supposed to say your pronouns as you introduce yourself. And the other would be uh, statements or teachings from teachers um, on the matter. And so what do we, how do we prepare our kids for that? One, I think we need to teach them compassion and we need to help students see that many of these people are, are utterly confused and hurting. Scripture says that they are darkened in their understanding in Ephesians 4:18, so we teach that we hate the sin, but we're careful to be compassionate and loving toward the people. They aren't Satan or his demons, but are those who are held captive by him and need to be freed. So there should be a, a, in our children a teaching of a certain level of compassion and, and pity and, and, and urgency. The other thing we need to teach our children is maybe a re-catechizing of uh, teaching on the image of God. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them, Genesis 127. And we need to teach our kids that the original design uh, was good. Uh, the fallen sinful world produces sinful desires and what people assume, um, they, they assume that what they feel is true Uh, So if they feel they are not who they should be, they assume that the problem is with the way they were made. And that can be confusing, but we need to keep that view of the the fact that we are created good in the image of God, and that includes male and female. So we have to help them see that. We also have to teach our kids wisdom. In Matthew 10, uh, 
16, it says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So you're going out in the midst of wolves. And what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be wise. So there are t ways to speak and there are times to speak. Um, you don't have to go out seeking trouble. It may not be wise to challenge someone who is militant and vocal in their views, especially when they are in front of a crowd. It may be wise to gently and respectfully speak when someone you've built a relationship with maybe is alone with you. So we need to teach wisdom. You can actually bring reproach on the name of Christ by the way you act. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there are... There are um, methods in, in standing up against this that we don't want to employ, perhaps, because we want to be seen as honorable. Uh, we also want to teach our kids about suffering and persecution. Uh, suffering and persecution for your, for your views will come because there will be times when you can't avoid speaking up because if the situation is forcing you to either choose between being true to scripture or compromising. And, and there will be times when they have to speak up and they will get backlash. So helping kids uh, develop a theology of suffering and persecution, persecution is important. So how do you deal with teachers and administrators who are pushing this? In my experience, there are still many who are pushing, I'll say in quotes, because they, they think they're supposed to, not because they have bought into the ideology. There are many who just think that's what we're supposed to be doing, but they don't know better. They don't really buy in, though. My, a lot of my conversations with teachers and, and some of the administrators is, this is wrong, but what are you going to do? So recognizing that at this, at this time, I will say, because it could change, there are still administrators and teachers who are concerned with what is happening is important. Recognize that this is bigger than them. Um, it is a pressure that comes from Satan and filters down from the highest levels of government and society. You don't have to challenge the ideology, but respectfully reserve the right as a parent to not have your child participate in such activities like a pride day, for example. So respectfully uh, and seeking not to fight as much as possible is the thing, the attitude we need to take. A belligerent person will cause administrators and teachers to dig in their heels just to get you away from them. Uh, so they are also trying to navigate these things that have implications for their careers. If they don't uphold it, they could get backlash themselves and may feel some sense of powerlessness to do anything about it. So realize they're not the enemy. By and large, the administrators and teachers are not the enemy, but they're caught up in this huge demonic scheme like a lot of people are. Um, the, uh, the second question, I'll just go on, is, is there any practical wisdom the elders can share for parents who are considering schooling choices for their children? Homeschool, Christian school, public school. Um, well, first of all, I do think parents have a responsibility to educate their children, but this doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be done through homeschooling. Okay, I really firmly believe that parents have a responsibility to educate their children in terms of morality and truth and biblical principles and application, but there is still much, I'd say most, 
in English, science, social studies, math, that is acceptably taught by others. Okay? Something to consider in public school is class size, increasingly, and consequent teacher availability. Um, I know, I feel that every day. This will likely mean that your child may have to do some work at home and that you'll have to be diligent in helping them. However, having said that, there are many children who learn in Excel even in these settings, right? Uh, recognize that while Christian schools have more control over things like the LGTB agenda, there are still mean kids and tough situations in Christian schools. Uh, Christian does not mean trouble-free. Okay. Recognize that the context may be different, but it might still be valuable. My kids went to public school. I've had conversations with Melody now and my kids saying, well, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't make that choice these days um, given what's happening, but at the same time, I think the principle still holds. You have to be more aware and involved with your child in public school but the context becomes the means of teaching children how to be Christians in a fallen world in real time and in real ways. It, it gives you a different context. You bump up against the world. You'll have conversations and they'll have to make difficult choices and you'll have to help them through that. Sending your children to public school does not mean that you're sending them in for brainwashing. And I think that's a common uh, idea that if you send your kids to public school, they're going to be brainwashed. I don't think so, um, especially if you're involved and they're a part of a good church and a family with strong Christian teaching, especially, especially when until they're older, until they're, they're later teenagers or young adults, uh, many children still hold to their parents' views above that of school and their teachers. Um, so to say that you're going to go to public school, you're going to be brainwashed, well, that's like saying, I'm going to send them there and I'm going to throw up my hands and abdicate my responsibility. That, that's not a, net, a logical or a necessary conclusion. So when you're considering schooling, consider your availability to your children, whether you're prepared to do that work, plans for communication with children and the school, um, and, that one isn't, and that one isn't necessarily maybe better than the other, although perhaps many maybe who homes, homeschool might see all the benefits there. There's just a different context often and it can offer different opportunities. So we don't want in this church to say, well, gee, most people homeschool, that must be the right thing to do, and I'm doing the, the lesser option. I think that is divisive in a church. I think we want to say that you need to be prepared for what you're signing your kids up for, but you, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your children if you're involved. So that's a long answer, but that's two yeah. I'll, I'll just I'll just say that you know just to add on to Paul's and and his great answer, we we just always the way we kind of have put it so often is the stress, not necessarily on homeschool but on home education, and it's Father's Day. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That has to be the presupposition, and even the Christian schools are changing now. I'm hearing more and more reports of. LGBTQ agendas in professedly Christian schools. So you've got you've to kind of be on your toes as parents, but it's home education, training at home, and then whatever choices that fit for your family, you're gonna have to then be engaged on any of those fronts. But yeah, really appreciate Paul kind of walking us through all that.
That's really good. This one, I deal a little more with just the society as a whole. So as the woke transgender movement continues to infiltrate our society, we can see some right-wing movements growing to counter the, the left, such as the Daily Wire, you know, Tucker Carlson, CBN, etc. What should the response of the church be? How active should the church get or be? Is the church properly prepared to deal with such evil? So the so when you when you ask these questions, so it's what's the response of the church? How active should the church be? Is the church properly prepared to deal with such evil? So it becomes a question is, and it's not original to us, what is the mission of the church? Are we talking about when it when in the question? Are we talking about what individual Christians should be doing? Is that what's being referred to as the church generically? Or are we talking about what a local church should be doing? So that, that's a key, key thing right there. So I kind of wonder if the question is wondering, what, what should Christians, individual Christians be doing? Well, individual Christians, you need to be loving the Lord you know, being a part of your local church, seeking to grow in the Lord, and then in all of the spheres of life, you want to be bearing testimony as disciples of Jesus Christ, testifying to the gospel, bearing, bearing that witness, speaking the truth in love, and trusting God for the results. Being salt and light, that's your individual mission. However, when we're, then this question, sometimes it's like, well, we want the institutional church or churches institutionally to then weigh in and try to then try to then be kind of almost a voting block or be kind of a, a, a political and sociological block that then is trying to move the needle on these things. And we've got to ask the question, what is the mission of the church as church? And, you know, Paul articulates that, uh, you know, God has given apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up, the bo- for for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, if really the truth is, the church has to get back to its mission. If we had people who are being equipped to mature manhood to actually be saints, well then we would stand out so distinctly against the culture that, that then it would be a magnet for those wanting to flee all these other things. But very practically I'd say, you know, how active should the church get? Well I would argue, and I just taught this at, this, at uh, Miller College of the Bible uh, this last week, I would argue that if you think that the church is not being active enough, the first place your activism needs to take place is at the prayer meeting. And I, I made the argument, and I'll still make it, that the degree to which you are concerned with problems in society, with, uh, how was it put, the woke transgender movement that infiltrates society 
and then these others to counter. Well, you know, maybe I might watch Daily Wire or Tucker, uh, you know, these ones. But they are paltry in response to the ability to pray to the true and living God, a privilege which Christian believers enjoy, which we do not take up enough, right? Or I don't know, maybe your prayer life is awesome. Um, I'm guessing if yours is like mine, it needs lots of improvement. So that's where the activism can take place, personally in our prayer closets, and then corporately in praying together where we can have an activism to appeal to God and deal with these issues. And I think if we, had, if we were doing that, everything else would be relativized a lot clearly. And then for people who are in the workplace, in these schooling issues, all these different things, then you would actually be more equipped to be salt and light because you're not trying to trust in politics you know, it's even the right-wingers are Marxists in this case because we're all trusting in politics. That's a Marxist philosophy. But no, we trust in the living God to actually change hearts. So that would, that would change the whole, the whole way we approach this if we got back to what is the mission of the church as church. And that's something as elders we've, uh, we've really tried to imbibe and be sharp on. Uh, so in other words, be at the prayer meeting. So that's, that's the answer. I'll say one other quick thing. So I, I think a lot of us are, you know, encouraged by the, the pushback, right, against the the left agenda that, that seems to be all over the place. And so when we see those standing up on the right, pushing back, trying to make a stand, you know, there's an aspect of encouragement there. But what we have to remember is, you know, a lot of these groups, Daily Wire, Tucker Carlson, et cetera, you know, are they actually believers and are they grounding their worldview and, and their political activism on the scriptures, on who God is and who man is as um, sinners who needs to be saved. And, and usually the answer is no. And so we might agree with some of the conclusions or even some of their arguments, but the foundation is actually entirely different. And so we need to be, keep that in mind just from a, a, a presuppositional worldview perspective. You know, we got to build our worldview on the scriptures, on what God has said, who God is, who man is, the need for each individual men, women, and child to be saved from their sins. That's the, the focus that we need to be on. And yes, that results in changed lives, but changed society without the gospel doing the work from the inside out is not actually going to do any, anything of eternal good, right? Can I just say that um, I think that the, the times that we live in with this, with this woke agenda actually provides us with, with a great mission moment in the church uh, especially with the, the whole LGBTQ stuff, the gender stuff, because even unbelievers are looking at it and saying, this is not right that a man can go into a woman's dressing room and parade around naked because in the common grace of God, they, they see male and female in his image. And so I think, it, you know, you've got to be wise. You know, if you're in, in the classroom, you might not want to get into a shouting match with the teacher and all the other students, you might want to go and maybe have a private conversation. Um, but I'm wanting, to, I'm wanting to drill down on uh, creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, and then I want to arc and get to the gospel. Because people are saying, oh, Jordan Peterson, and he's pushing back. And, yeah, J Jordan doesn't save. Jesus saves. And so you can get, if you, 
you, you drill down on Genesis 1 and 2, and just tapping into that common grace wisdom that God's revealed, uh, male and female in his image, marriage, you know, you're going to arc tr- to the true man, Jesus Christ, the marriage of, of uh, Christ, the bridegroom to the church, and what is the gospel. And so if we see it in that uh, context, I think it, it, it's actually a mission moment, and we see it not just, we're not going to just panic, but use wisdom and see what platforms that you do have. And if you get an opportunity to speak truth in, in, to power or truth into a public domain, then, then do it with care and wisdom and, and biblical grounding. All really good stuff. Shifting gears here a little bit. What is Calvary Grace Church's teaching on giving and tithing? Is 10% the minimum? Is it self-serving to answer this question, ask for more than 10%? Actually, and, and as well, I, I get the intention of the question, but I should just you know, qualify it by saying, what is, what is CGC's teaching? Well, we should just be concerned with what's the Bible's teaching. Uh, that's what we really want to know. It's, it, it, it matters less what Calvary Grace's teaching, quote-unquote, is on these issues. Uh, what does the Bible say? And, and we have to reckon with where does this 10% number come from? Well it's, well, it's an Old Testament idea under the theocracy of Israel, kind of functioning almost like a tax. But it's amazing. Like, something like 2 Corinthians 8, the example of the churches in Macedonia. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Uh, so this is, this is amazing that, that people who love, love the Lord and love the cause of the gospel and want to see it advanced, that they would participate not just according to their means, but beyond their means to see that advancement. And so, so that 10%, you can use it as a, as a tool, but it, it is more uh, to be had from the heart. And of course, uh, later on in, in chapter 9 and verse 17, um, then... Uh, or 9 and verse 7, then uh, we're exhorted that, of course, the Lord loves uh, a cheerful giver. You know, then that's the thing. Like, if you're looking for minimums or maximums, the question is, what, where's the nature of your generosity from the heart? Are you, is it a glad thing? Are you excited for the advance of the gospel and to participate in it, just like these Macedonians were? So it's almost kind of the wrong end of the question. And you can, you can then think about what are your means? What, what means do you have? And are you committed to the advance of the gospel? I'll, I'll, I'll just add one more thing, and then I think Deidre's going to say, you can give whatever to this church. I mean, but, I'll, but I'm going to say, this church and churches like it, they're getting few and far between. So if, you're, if it's not here, then where? And there are... It, it's going to be, we talk about these waves of difficulty that are coming. Well, then it's going to be a luxury to have a good church 
but it requires support. There's nobody else going to swoop in and provide support for these good, healthy churches. If it's not the people that are the members of those churches supporting them, they will dry up and blow away. So it's incumbent on us under God to take advantage of, of this and have the stewardship of, of good ministries if, if we're a part of those. This came, uh, question came up yesterday in the men's breakfast, so, uh, and I, I answered it, I'll, I'll get around two here. So 1 Timothy uh, 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, quoting from uh, Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So there is a, a scriptural teaching of, we have a responsibility to care for those who labor in the word uh, for us on our behalf that we receive from you know, regularly. And that includes providing for their means you know, as we are able. And uh, you know, so for the, the staff pastors here, right, that's their, their day job, if you will. Uh, you know, for those of us who um, can support, you know, we have an obligation to you know, do our best to support their ministry. And it actually frees up their time and energy rather than having to be you know, a tent maker spending you know, a lot of hours in another job. Right? They can then uh, allocate that time and energy into studying the word, into the ministry of the church, equipping the saints, as we've talked about. And there's a, a real reward and benefit for us even for that work. Right. The second, the second principle I'll, I'll just kind of briefly touch on is uh, we always have to remember that the, the finances and money that we receive and we earn, you know, is not actually ours. We're, we're to be stewards of it um, from God. And so, you know, however you spend your money uh, and your, your time and energy, it, it goes to that as well. Those are, those are talents that God's given you that at some point, you know, on the judgment day, you're going to look your Lord and the Savior and, and, you know, describe what you did with it. Right? And, and are you going to be deemed faithful in, in the resources that God gave you? A portion of that certainly is, is in giving to the church, right? And supporting the ministry. Uh, but that should not mean that we do it out of um, begrudging or of uh, just mere duty, right? God loves a cheerful giver. He, he loves a cheerful giver because he's a cheerful giver. And he gives, you know, bountifully to us so we can give, give back to the work of the gospel, you know, in, in proclaiming the, the gospel in the city. Two quick things. Uh, our giving uh, to the work of the kingdom, as in this, this, this tithing, is actually a bit of an indication of how much the generosity of God in the grace of God has gripped your heart. Because as you, as you dwell on that, as that grips you, it overflows in generosity uh, to, towards others and, to, and towards the work of the kingdom. And secondly, I will say, because Henry Hansmer told me this on the way in, uh, that our giving is actually an act of worship. And we should see it like that. So it was, a, it was a good word from Henry. Another question concerning maybe the elders' view of Calvary Grace's view or the Bible's view. What is uh, Calvary Grace's view on the Lord's Supper? Is it a mere memorial or is there more to it? Also, why do we only do it once a month and not every Sunday? Clint's got to answer that because he started the church and made that rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can blame me. So the memorial view is uh, sometimes attributed to Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, it's common in a lot of churches. Um, I was helped uh, many years ago by Michael Haken pointing out uh, 
our, the communion passage is 1 Corinthians 11, but if you go back in 1 Corinthians 12, there is this discussion that Paul has about participating in the Lord's Supper, but then also participating in these meals that would be associated with idol worship. And, and he, he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And, and then he goes on. The food offered to idols, is it anything or that is an idol anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, what we're a way of describing the Lord's Supper. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of of demons shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy are we stronger than he well we we don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy because there is some spiritual dynamic that goes on as we engage in the Lord's Supper so it's more than merely a memorial in my view Uh, it is a remembrance and then where do we get this idea of remembrance well the Lord Jesus said as much we're to remember do this in remembrance of me so it is a remembering but how I've also understood it is that when you remember when you remember what Christ has accomplished and actually by memory you're remembering all he's done and remember yes Jesus is in the heaven he's alive right now and when you obey in that remembering God always gives you grace to obey when you obey him he gives you the grace to obey so when you're obeying in the Lord's Supper the Lord is actually giving you grace as you remember him and so that that spirituality the the grace in this partaking that is the classic reformed view and so that's what we have by and large taught but i also think like it's not to say it's over and against remembering it's actually through the remembering and that's how then the spirit works in granting us grace when we obey so uh, I'll leave you. Oh, and then the, then the other part on the oh yeah on the frequent. Yeah, I'll just yeah, add go on ahead that before you do that part. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the other extreme view of the Lord's Supper would be that the Catholic view that it actually is a saving thing that you do. Uh, that's not our view. It is. It points to what has happened. You're participating in it because of what has happened in your life. That's the saving view. It's the Christ behind the meal. What it's pointing to. So, so it's not just me memorial, but it's also not something you do to be saved. It is something you do because you are saved. And, and the second part, Gavin, remind me that I didn't answer. The, uh, the second part is as far as frequency. So, you know, we, we only do it once a month, not every Sunday. Well, again, we've got to go back to the Bible and just kind of consider, okay, what, what is here? And Jesus said... Do this as often as you drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a frequency. It's often. But it is, it is then 
you know, it's when you do it, in the frequency you do it, this is what you ought to do. And, and so we, our frequency is monthly, and which by many accounts is quite frequent. Um, the Scottish Presbyterians would do it seasonally, maybe only once a year. Uh, other churches may want to do it every Sunday, uh, and they're free to do that. But we find that by doing it once a month allows us the, the proper gravity and focus on the Lord's Supper so that we can do it thoughtfully, we can do it faithfully, we can do it obediently, and not then somehow treat it as um, kind of a magic ceremony uh, like, the, like the Roman Catholics do. And so I think it's frequent, and, and we're doing it as often in that frequency. That's good. I have a question on fasting. Is it a sin to not fast? Are there exceptions for those with health issues or who might grow faint very quickly? Um, what are some practical tips for individuals who wish to grow in their fasting? Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the topic and subject of fasting is something that we're, we're very um, disconnected from, especially in this day and age. You know, you've got the skip the dishes, you've got, you've got McDonald's on your way to work. Uh, there's the quick food, the, the fast food. Um, also, just the reality of living in the Western world, a lot of us don't know what hunger is because we are so medicated by food. We often will eat our emotions, you know, your stress, so you go to the fridge. Um, or maybe that's just me. <laughs> Uh, there is there is this tendency towards food. We are foodies, you know. We love food, and yet Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he says, "And when you fast, so not if you fast, but when you fast." In the Old Testament, there was actual prescribed fasts. Uh, in particular, the Day of Atonement, the people would fast, and and now in the in the New Covenant, Jesus is still condoning and recommending even, uh, even commanding that we would fast. Now, that's obviously going to look different person to person. That's the reality of the new covenant is it's not necessarily law as much as it is the spirit of the law and our heart for God. John Piper has, uh, has written and spoken on this a lot, a hunger for God. Um, the sensation of being hungry is such, a, such an interesting one. One that, again, we don't often fully realize, like, unlike people maybe in other parts of the world. But just to say, if we were to commit to skipping a meal, and we sort of talked about this at the men's breakfast, uh, hard to envision fasting after such a, a great breakfast by TJ. Um, but just to imagine, you, you skip breakfast one morning, and you commit to praying, particularly for a particular thing or an issue or dynamic for, for revival or for your family or for your workplace. And as you feel that hunger, you, you suddenly realize your own weakness. You suddenly realize your own inabilities. And then you rely on the Lord in a, in a whole other way that you wouldn't have otherwise. And there's something spiritually as we, as we depend and rely on the Lord in our hunger that makes us realize man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. And in so fasting, uh, the, the Lord does a lot of good for us, and I think we have more, um, more fervent 
appeal to the Lord in whatever we're praying for. And obviously, with health limitations and capacities, that's going to look different for people. Um, but again, just going back to the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast. So that's something for us to all consider. I think that's, that's good. Try to get through another two or three more questions here before the main service. What is the importance of a written confession of faith? Isn't the Bible enough? Well, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So, in a, so to say, is the Bible enough? Yeah, we, we do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's there for all of our needs. However, if you have a question, just as even we're answering these questions, well, we, we don't stop in answer and say, okay, let's start in Genesis 1.1, and we're going to read through the end of Revelation right now in order to answer that question. No, we have to have some type of synthesis and summary to describe what is the whole Bible's teaching on it. And, of course, that is to be tested by the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's what a confession of faith is. It's basically taking all the Bible's teaching on various key topics and being able to summarize and synthesize us. And you say, well, yeah, well, okay, that's just, you know, that's just man's opinion. That's, that's not what the Bible's own opinion. But it's interesting that even the Bible itself starts to argue this way. So Paul, at the end of his letter to the Galatians, he, he spoke of those who would walk by this rule, he said, in Galatians 6.16, this rule namely of new creation in Christ. And that word for rule is the word, Greek word kanon, from which we get canon. And it's the idea of a measuring line, uh, something that's a, a rod that's used as a measuring line. And that's what, just like a ruler that we would say. And so that's what a confession of faith is. It's a ruler by which we can line up that straight edge to see if teaching is consistent with the whole Bible or it is not. And that's why we make these confessions of faith. They're just a summary that is a straight line to apply to issues or to apply to what people are claiming is the teaching of the Bible. And, and then you can discern, is it in keeping, is it in line, or is it out of line? So that's, that's the benefit. And, um, you know, that's why also we learn from the history of the church and those who have thought through these, these rulers, these straight edges, and then we discern it, it, with the sufficiency of Scripture. Does Scripture support then these confessions of faith? And we have a teaching statement, we have a congregational statement that is a ruler by which people are lining up and seeing, okay, yeah, I believe this does reflect Scripture's teaching, and I can confess this. I can own this ruler because I believe it's faithful to the Word of God. And just to be clear, it's the, the Scriptures that are infallible, right? The, the statements, you know, are only true insofar as, as Clint has said, they, you know, correctly teach what the Scriptures state. This is an interesting question. Can a Calvinist date an Arminian? What triage is necessary for a dating relationship which hopes to lead to marriage? You, you, you go ahead. You've you got the dating advice here. Well, yeah. I'll start it. You can clean it up. Um, so the, the question is, can, uh, can a Calvinist date an Arminian? Yeah, you can. 
Yeah, sure. But is it wise? That, that's the real question. And um, I would just like to fast forward into the future as you're, you know, so there's an attraction, there's an interest in a person, and then there's a recognition, okay, maybe theologically there might be some differences. Well, I just want to sort of go, Lord willing, fast forward in, in your mind, a sanctified imagination, go forward 50, 60 years and imagine you've married this person or you've, you've married a person and say you have both shared in deep trust in the Lord Jesus. You've had a love for him. You've been grounded in sound doctrine together. The, the husband has shepherded his wife and given her um, shepherding care from the word, watering her, and she has responded submissively, and together they've had that unity in the Bible. The trials that have come through their life, they've, they've weathered those because they've trusted in God's sovereign goodness, and the Lord has carried them through that. So that's the end of their life. So then you, you sort of reverse engineer that back, 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 back. Will you have that if, and that sweetness, will you have that if you actually commit to very early on starting on fairly different groundings? So if you if you have different, different views on is God sovereign or not, that's dramatically going to change the way that you experience the trials that will certainly come into your life. Even as a dating couple, marriage, children, if the Lord would will, uh, there's going to be a lot that comes into your life. And if you're both experiencing and walking with the Lord with a, a significant, significantly different view of his hand in those things, that's just going to going to be awkward and painful because you're not going to be united in that. Uh, and maybe there's a personality sort of dynamic that one sort of just sort of goes with the other. Uh, but that's also going to affect what church do you go to? How do you teach your children? What, how do you pray? When you start thinking in categories like Calvinism and Arminianism, maybe early on you think, boy, he's cute or she's cute and so cute that I just don't care because we're just so in love and we're going to work it out because we both love Jesus. Uh, I'll just say there's a, the question includes a triage and uh, I'm assuming that the question asked is not about compatibility. It's not, it's not about personality. It's not about attraction and all that. I'm, I'm assuming the way that the question's phrased is about a, a doctrinal alignment and, and how much alignment should you have to pursue a person. And obviously, uh, you would have primary, secondary, tertiary. The, the reality is, is the other person a believer? Just full stop, is he or she a believer? And is he or she growing in the Lord? And that's something that could be maybe rushed because you think, oh, I just... Christian, good enough, goes to the college and careers group or whatever, youth group, whatever. I, I'm just going to go for it and ask them out to coffee because I know they're a Christian, good. But is he or she growing? Is there a maturity? Is there a, a growth in uh, treasuring Christ that maybe you wait a few months or longer to, to really see in group settings? You see how they pray, uh, how, they, uh, how they receive the ministry of the church, how they respond to the ministry and the, the, the teaching and the shepherding of the elders. Is this a, a man or woman who is on the path closer and closer to the Lord by his grace? And then you just ask, is, does this person go to a, a strong church where the Bible is appropriately uh, taught? And uh, I'd say, you know, even just practically as far as the teaching of this church goes, does this man or woman, boy or girl, do, do, they, 
do they align with the doctrines of grace? And yeah, so maybe Calvinism, call it that, sure. But that God is sovereign, and by his grace he has saved us, not by works, lest we should boast, but uh, to have a high view of the doctrines of grace, uh, what the Bible says about complementarianism, that's going to be huge for a relationship. If you're not on the same page, that's going to be a big issue. Um, and the way, uh, you know, I heard this at Bible camp because there's all sorts of romance that happens at Bible camp and all sorts of interest in youth group and Sunday school, whatever, uh, boy meets girl and all that. Uh, the way that one, one person put it to me, and maybe you've heard it before, is just keep on following the Lord. And it's almost like you're swimming. You're swimming towards the Lord. And as you're swimming, him, uh, swimming loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and mind, you are then occasionally looking up as you're swimming to see, is there anyone also doing the same thing? And you say, oh, okay, he, she's doing the same thing. Great, I'm going to just keep on swimming because that's my priority to love God ultimately, to treasure Christ, not him or her. And then as you start, there's all this, anyways. Um, and and as, you, as you look up, he or she is still there. You're both growing in the Lord. You're both uh, savoring him to, and and maybe as you grow closer to the Lord together, maybe even in the same church, you're growing closer to the Lord. You're actually growing closer to each other. And there's a lot of alignment and a lot of wisdom, especially from others. That Yeah, maybe, maybe you guys should go for coffee. Just, I know we've got to finish, but very quickly, if, you, if you're starting with triage, that might not be a good thing. <laughs> the word triage, right? Um, look it up. I just did. Uh, yes. Emergency rooms, starting the relationship like that. But just in terms of dating, uh, th three things it, to get clarity on in the time of dating. Uh, three key things. The sovereignty of, of God in salvation, we talked about. Sovereignty of God in suffering and complementarianism, male, female, and the roles. They're, th they're three key things that you want to come to an alignment on if you're pursuing marriage. Sounds good. Well, I think that's all we have for, for time. There's a good five or six questions that we hadn't gotten to yet. So if you ask those questions, feel free to pull one of the elders aside and, and pick at their brain a little bit. But I'll just close this in prayer, and we can get ready for the main service. Gracious God, we do thank you that you are so kind and loving towards us. Lord, that you are so favorable granting your favor to us and that we can gather here even this morning as, as a body and Lord that we can uh, worship you and and serve you under the head of Christ and Lord we uh, do ask that you would be with us now as we go into the main service uh, and be with us as uh, we seek to to obey uh, these things that you have instructed uh, in your word towards us and so we ask that you now uh, just grant us uh, even your spirit to fill us in this time. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.